This morning, uh, we've, we've obviously brought your attention to the persecuted church around the world. And uh, at this point, I want to sort of take it out of the distant realm and bring it home a little bit uh, by giving you a couple of names of our own missionaries who serve in a location where Christians are persecuted and where they cannot uh, witness openly. And that is um, Scott and Stephanie Gross. And uh, they've been on my hearts this week as I've been thinking about this. And, uh, while they're not actively and aggressively persecuted, they live in a current of ongoing persecution. And um, I wanted to be able to tell you that you could find more information out in the lobby about them, but uh, it's, it's actually not there. They have to be a little bit discreet. And um, in one of their recent visits home uh, to Fairbanks here a couple of years ago, I was talking with Scott. Uh, and he was relaying to me some of the ministry challenges that they faced where they are and, um, and, and how discouragement was something that could definitely creep in. And, and I asked them, I said, Scott, what do you do to encourage yourself? How, where do you guys fellowship? How do you, how do you come together and find uh, encouragement? And his answer surprised me a little bit. He said that oftentimes what they do in order to, to fellowship, uh, instead of having the ability to go to a church like we do, uh, is that they would sit in their living room together and they would pull out an iPod and and listen to the latest um, message from Bethel Church that was online. That's what they did. And I sat there and I listened to that. And I, I'll, be, I'll be very honest with you. The first thing that it did in my own heart was this. I thought, I want to be a better preacher. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it really kind of, it kind of hit home that... Um, uh, these are my friends. These are people I know. Scott lived with us for a while, and um, these are your own family, and, and uh, uh, they're one of us, and uh, it really did. It made me want to be a better preacher, and so sometimes when I come up here, I'm not thinking about you guys at all. <laughs> sometimes I'm thinking about Scott and Steph, and uh, and so this morning, I, uh, I just kind of want to say, um, Scott and Steph, if you guys are listening, uh, we are thinking of you. And we're praying for you. And this morning's title is specifically for Scott. If you look at your handout this morning, uh, some of you are going to find it a little humorous. The title of this message, this, of the, this morning's message is um, Too Legit to Quit. Anybody know the reference? I know last week was Bobby McFerrin's don't worry, be happy. And this week the title is Too Legit to Quit. Uh, if you don't know, the title is of an early 90s song by Mr. MC Hammer. <laughs> and um, Scott in particular, those of you who know Scott, is a very funny guy and has an appreciation for all things tacky, including musical titles. And uh, I wish he was here this morning for lots of reasons, but if, if he was, I think we might actually get him to rap or even dance a little bit to this. And the best part of that would be Stephanie would be watching and squirming and embarrassment and shame. And that would be great fun for all of us. Uh, but believe it or not, this, uh, this very tacky title of this musical song is a pretty good summation of the Apostle Paul's message to the Thessalonians in the first ten verses. And I'm not kidding. I know there's a little humor there, but... Um, Paul is addressing this young Thessalonian church. Remember, they're, they're probably less than a year old as a church at this point. And his primary purpose of writing is to encourage them. And I, and I, was, 
I'm thinking in the way that my heart thinks of Scott and Steph and others of our missionaries and my desire to encourage them. I think Paul's was the same. He wants to encourage and lift them up and speak words of truth that would bolster their souls in the midst of persecution. Because that's what they are experiencing. His primary purpose was to encourage them. If you remember, he sent young Timothy, Paul's faithful, trusted protege, the man he's training and bringing along in the faith and in leadership. And he sent Timothy to go and check on this young congregation that was struggling. And Timothy brought back a report. If you remember, it was incredible. The report was that the church in Thessalonica was thriving. In spite of persecution and limitations and against all odds, they had become a model church not just there in the town, but in all of Macedonia. What an incredible report to get back. Uh, as we kind of take a glance at sort of the themes and the messages throughout the book of, of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, we can kind of see some of the questions and the struggles and the difficulties that the Thessalonian believers were going through. Um, and we can see that there were some very real questions circling in their minds, such as maybe even the genuineness of their faith. Were they really living the Christian experience because it didn't seem to square with their expectations? They seemed to be questioning the goodness of God. If we're really genuinely in the faith and following the Lord, why then these difficulties? Why then this persecution that we're experiencing? They seem to question the wisdom of walking with God and imitating Jesus, if it just had a cost in this life. These seem to be some of the questions, maybe in the back of their mind, maybe in the front of their mind. They're still faithful, they're steadfast, they're persevering, but these seem to be the issues that they're, they're dealing with as Paul addresses them. And really throughout these next 10 verses, Paul encourages, encourages them by affirming the genuineness of their faith on one hand, and secondly, the breadth of their witness. The genuineness of their faith and the breadth of their witness. In other words, he is saying, you guys are legit. In fact, you're too legit to quit. There you go. I did it. I brought it in. Uh, So hang in there. Persevere. Be steadfast. You guys are the real deal. And we're proud of you. That's the message of these first 10 verses. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Seems like a fairly benign introduction to the book, right? After all, what what can we really gather here? What can we learn from this? Well, there's plenty of things. Uh, First of all, he addresses this to the church uh, of Thessalonica. He uses the word ecclesia. When we use the church today, we have a pretty specific meaning when we use it. But when this word ecclesia was used in the ancient world, particularly the Greek language here, uh, any real gathering would have been called an ecclesia, even a political gathering. And so it needed some distinguishing marks here. And so something that the Apostle Paul does is he kind of narrows down his audience and distinguishes who he's talking to. To the church, to the gathering of the Thessalonians who are in God the Father... But guess what? That wouldn't even be enough. Because remember, when Paul went to Thessalonica, we saw last week as we looked in Acts 17, who, was he, who did he initially go to? Do you remember? 
He went to the synagogue to speak to the Jews, to the God-fearing Jews. And there were also some God-fearing Gentiles there, some Greeks that were there as well. But he feels the need to distinguish who this message is to. So it's to this gathering, the church, those who are in God. But more than that, because the Jews, of course, believe in God. But now he needs to clarify not just God the Father, but our Lord Jesus Christ as well. So he has narrowed down exactly who he's talking to and distinguished them uh, very specifically. Another thing that we see in these, just this first verse here is that Paul identifies himself because he's first in the list as the primary author uh, of this book. But in the greeting, he lists his compatriots here too, doesn't he? Silas and uh, Timothy. And for those of you who know a little bit about Paul's life and his ministry, this is his second missionary journey. Uh, and, and you might remember something happened at the end of his first missionary journey in Acts 15. We're told that he and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So this is the new team. This is the new missionary team that he pulls together. He chooses Silas or Silvanius, as some of your translations may have, and Timothy. This is his new team for the second uh, missionary journey. And I want to just simply ask the question, what would the recipients of this letter have heard, even in these opening words, in this initial greeting? How would this have hit them? And I think one of the things, I've already shared with you some of them, but I think one of the things that would have come across loud and clear to them is this. We know you. As this letter arrived, I think there would have been great assurance to, the, to these young Thessalonian believers that Paul and his missionary team knew them. They were known. I think they would especially have been encouraged by the mention of Timothy. And I'll show you that in just a second. Uh, but this, me- this message is from Paul and Silas, who initially brought the gospel message there, who worked among them. Remember, we said that Paul was a tent maker for a season. He got a job to support his ministry and worked side by side with people in the area. Um, and, and I think they would have remembered that, yes, this is Paul and Silas. These guys that we know, they, they brought the message here. They worked among us. They lived among us. They modeled what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in everyday life. But I think especially the mention of Timothy here might have been encouraging to them. Because if you remember, Paul sent Timothy to go and check things out and see how things were going. So in other words, as this letter arrives, I think, I think the Thessalonians would have said, This letter is informed. Timothy came. He witnessed what was going on. He knows our questions. He knows our trials. He knows our struggles. He knows what we're persevering through. And he brought the report back to Paul and to Silas. And now they're writing us. And so what they're writing us about is informed. Does that make sense? This letter is an informed letter. And I think they would have been encouraged by this. So early on, I think Paul is just simply trying to get the, the point across. Listen, we know you. We're apprised of your situation. We know what's happening. We've had a man on the ground there to look at it. We're aware. And then he offers a very customary greeting, grace and peace to you. Which I think is often lost on us because we see it so often in Paul's letters. But I think it would have been a standout in the early church. The grace of God. That has been poured out in Jesus Christ. Brings peace with God. Grace and peace to you. Let's go on. Let's see what else Paul has to say here. Verse 2. He says we always thank God. 
for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember you before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we're presented with just the ongoing, continuous, and fervent prayer that Paul and his companions maintain for uh, this young church. And what they thank God specifically for is the assurance they have in the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith. Uh, And so the first point I think they would have gotten across, hey, we know you guys, but I think secondly this, we know you're the real deal. We know you're the real deal. I was thinking about a way to just kind of illustrate this. Uh, Do we have any Coca-Cola lovers here? And a few of you. Where's Chris at? I know Chris is a, she's not in here right now. Maybe she is. She's hiding. Chris Martin is a Coca-Cola lover. Um, Have you ever been to Canada and bought a Coke? And you take a drink and you realize, hmm, it's just a little bit different. In fact, everything in Canada is just a little bit different. (laughs) I'm going to leave that alone. And then maybe you travel overseas to Europe or something. and, And once again, you're looking for something familiar and known. And so you buy a Coke. And you take a drink and you go, that's a lot different. Totally different. Just a different recipe. Do you know what all the rage is right now uh, is Coke from Mexico? Right? Have you seen this? And you wonder, what? Usually we brag about made in the USA or these kinds of things or local fare or whatever. But now we're sort of bragging about this is Coke from Mexico. I think, I'm not certain about this. I think it's because it's made with real sugar as opposed to high fructose corn syrup. Lots of nods. You guys see? Look at You guys are informed. But we know when we're getting the real deal and when we're getting something false, right? We know when it's a bit off. And Paul is sort of giving them this encouragement. Hey, we know you're the real deal. You bear all the marks of the genuine article. And so he kind of lists three things very quickly here. He lists, we see your work. Produced by faith. We see your labor prompted by love. We see your endurance inspired by hope. And if you've, if you've read any of the Apostle Paul's writings at all, these three really will jump off the page to you as very common. These really are uh, sort of the three cardinal virtues of the Christian life. Faith, love, and hope. And wherever Christian character is described in the New Testament, the ideal Christian character, these three are the markers of it. Very interesting. If someone were to ask you, uh, what does a relationship with Jesus Christ yield in your life? These are three things that should really be at the top of, uh, of your list. Uh, we find them in almost every one of uh, the Apostle Paul's letters. Um, we also have to remember that one does not become a Christian simply by imitating these virtues. These virtues are formed from the inside out. When a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ is begun and fostered and developed and grown and fed, it yields these things. This is the outcome of genuine faith. And it's important to remember that. I think of the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, Jesus did not come to make nice people, but what? New men. New men. Transformed from the inside out. So Paul is encouraging these guys, hey, we know you. We've been among you. Timothy is with us. We're informed. This letter is apprised of your situation. Be encouraged. We know you're the real deal. 
This is the internal evidence that we see in you, the faith, the love, and the hope. You're the real deal. Then he goes on essentially to say, we know you're the real deal because we've seen the fruit firsthand. We've seen it firsthand. And in a sense, the evidence here kind of goes, initially we looked at internal evidence of their genuine faith, but now we're going to kind of look at what seems to be Paul's confidence in their genuineness based on external evidence. Uh, I'll try to show you what I'm talking about here. Look at verse 4. Paul continues to affirm his confidence in their genuine faith. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so the first piece of external evidence that Paul brings to bear on the genuineness of their faith uh, is this. It's clear that God has chosen you. And I think this is very interesting. And actually, there's a great misfortune about this because oftentimes the doctrine of election, which is what Paul is alluding to here, the sovereign choice of God of some for salvation, typically breaks down into a debate. We get upset about it. We start arguing about it. We start arguing about whose agency is really at work here, God's or man's, and what's the sequence of events and all of these kinds of things. We get into the minutia of the debate and we miss the beautiful encouragement that is almost always intended by it. Uh, Almost without fail, the purpose of Paul in mentioning the doctrine of election or God's sovereign choice here is to encourage people about the security of their faith. It's an encouragement that he's bringing to bear. At the core of the doctrine of election is the reality that there is more than just human agency at work. At the core of it is that God is at work in this salvation. And Paul consistently uses it as as an encouragement. God is behind this salvation. God is in this. God is securing you. And so he's telling the Thessalonians here, be confident in your salvation because we see God at work in you. External evidence. Not just the internal evidence of the fruit of faith, love, and hope, which are good things. But we see God's agency at work in you. The second piece of external evidence that he brings forward is this. The gospel was proclaimed to you with power. With power. I think this point is really easy to miss. It's a fairly nuanced point. It's easy to get confused about what's what's going on here. But... One of the assurances that Paul has in the legitimacy of the Thessalonians' faith is his own experience as a messenger of the gospel. It's Paul's experience. He's not saying we see power in you. He's saying that the gospel was proclaimed to you with power. He's referring to his own experience in sharing the gospel with them and ministering to them. He's remembering how God was powerfully at work among them, the ministers, as they did this. It's an external evidence once again. Uh, and so he's, he's remembering this power of God that was at work. And I want to illustrate this for you just a little bit or try. I can tell you this morning that as a preacher, um, as you guys know very well, uh, there's days when I'm just off. It's just off. It's flat. 
I don't know what creates that. I wish I did because I would erase it. Uh, But there are some days when I'm preaching and I'm going along and uh, you all are thinking about lunch or the football game or something else. I don't know. But it's just kind of off and it's it's flat or it seems to miss. And then there are times and I'm not taking credit for this. Understand this. okay? please hear me clearly. There are times uh, when I'm preaching, when I am aware of the power of God in a specific moment, when God is speaking through me. And I am not taking credit for it. It is not me. But there are times, there are moments. In fact, I could go back and listen to messages of, you know, months ago and say this specific moment in the message was a God moment where he was delivering a message and I was just just the vehicle of it. And I want to tell you that those experiences are uh, intoxicating and sweet. And, And those are the moments that you pray for all week long as you're studying and preparing. And as I'm sitting back here with Andrew getting ready to come up here, I'm praying that God would give those kinds of moments in this service, that he would speak and that I would be able to just get out of the way. But I could tell you specifically uh, where those moments are and when God is in the mix. And uh, they're special. Um, And as I would go back and listen to those messages, I want to tell you I have the greatest confidence in those moments when clearly the Lord was at work and it had little to do with me. Those are my greatest moments of confidence. And I think you all experience this as well. As you use your spiritual gifts, as the Lord empowers you, maybe your gift is service and you come alongside somebody in a moment of need and you serve them and you kind of, you get that glimpse and you realize, man, the Lord was really with me and empowered me to see a need and respond. And I know that what I offered there was genuinely helpful and of the Lord. Or if your gift is encouragement and you came alongside a brother or sister who was low at a particular time and and somehow God gave you just that right word, just that right verse in that moment. You almost don't know where it comes from. And yet you know God was at work through you in that moment of encouragement. Or maybe it's giving. Maybe that's your gift. And you saw a need once again and you had some resource and some margin and maybe you sort of made a sacrificial arrangement in order to give towards it. And you know that God worked in your heart powerfully to release something that he had entrusted to you for the benefit of others. And you know that it was God's work in you. And, and I think we all experience, experience these, these kinds of moments. And I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I know that God was at work in us as we powerfully proclaimed the gospel to you. There was something at work there that was bigger than us. It wasn't just mere words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. It was more than just human agency. And so Paul brings this to bear in the situation saying, we know you're the real deal. We've seen it firsthand. Not only has God chosen you, not only do we see God at work in you, but we know that as we proclaim the gospel to you, that it came to you with power. He powerfully worked in and through us. To preach to you. And then he goes on to give one more piece of, of external evidence. Of the genuineness of their faith. You are continually transformed. Even through persecution. So look at the second half of verse 5 there. He says you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us. And of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. 
with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. What kind of suffering was it? It was severe. Severe. This joy, Paul tells them, this wasn't a result of your circumstances. Clearly, you were in the midst of severe suffering. This wasn't something that you manufactured on your own effort. But Paul is showing him once again that there's more than just human agency at work here. He says, we've seen that the Holy Spirit gave you joy to imitate us and to imitate the life of Christ and to receive this message in the midst of suffering, severe suffering. Um, In fact, something interesting here, as Paul continues on in his ministry from this point, uh, he even comments to other churches, specifically the church in Corinth. He comments to them and he sort of brags on the Thessalonian church or the churches in Macedonia about their joy in suffering. He points to it. Listen to this. This is in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 1 through 4, if you want to go there or, or look there later. But he says this. Again, this is to a totally different congregation, to the Corinthians. But he tells them, And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So as Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, he's bragging about the Macedonian church. You should see the love that welled up in them, the joy that they had, the heart that they had to participate in our ministry through their generosity amidst the persecution and the trials that they were going through. That's how broad uh, the witness of this church had become, which brings us to really the fourth point here, which is this. Your witness extends further than you know. Further than you know. Which I will tell you is a reality for all of us. For good or for ill, your witness extends further than you know. Verse 7. He says, and so, this is back to the Thessalonians, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. That's funny, as they're going out doing their other missionary ventures, people are telling them about their own experiences. The word has gotten there ahead of them. They tell, you, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Uh, There's a phrase there. He says the Lord's message. This, of course, refers to the gospel that they had received and that they were speaking about. And then there's this there's this word here that's translated. There's a Greek word here translated for us rang out. Easy just to kind of read right on past this, but this is actually a really rich word in the original language here it's only used one time in the entire new testament so you actually have to go out to some other ancient documents to see how it's used but more often than not when it's used um, outside of the bible this this uh, phrase here rang out it's used of of thunder erupting and sort of rolling or it's used of a trumpet being sounded or a bunch of trumpets and their clarion sound Or a cheer from a crowd that again just erupts and continues to kind of roll on. So it has both this sudden and sustained reverberating sound. 
And that's the description that Paul gives of the witness of the Thessalonian church. That is how the gospel was among them. It rang out. Sudden and reverberating. Going everywhere. Heard by all. That's a pretty good reputation, isn't it? Uh, I think it's an enviable reputation. And then in verses 9 and 10, he shows us that uh, there was more than just the proclamation of the gospel, more than just the profession of faith here, but they have a reputation for practicing their faith. What they believed was transferred into the substance of their lives. They were transformed by it. They had turned from their old ways and had turned from their old life. I love what John Stott uh, says about this. He says, no church, no church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity or credibility unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. Isn't that good? We have nothing to say unless we have first been transformed. Uh, And so being a faithful witness to this gospel is both a living act and a spoken act, as you know. As you can see here, the Apostle Paul is proud of this church. He loves them. He is wanting to encourage them. And they have become a model church uh, to others. And he is essentially telling them here in these first ten verses, hey, you guys are legitimate in your faith. You are legitimate. You're legit. Too legit to quit. There we go. I'm going to have you guys rapping by the end of this message. So remain steadfast. So let me ask this question. How does this relate to you in your life? What are, what are we supposed to take from this? I think there's something that's important here because I think a lot of us can ask the same questions that the Thessalonians are asking, and that is, how do we know that we're living the Christian experience? How do we know that our faith itself, how do we know that it's genuine? Maybe there's some circumstances in your life that are coming against you and you sit back and you think, This is not what I expected when I signed up for this. I thought life might be a little bit different. And so I want to very quickly go through a list that I have in your handout that I hope will be helpful to you to answer this question. How do we know that we're truly living out the Christian experience? There's some false assurances that are prevalent in our world. Uh, The first one, I think, is this, a peaceful life. Right? It's very easy to buy into some of these lies or these distortions. Maybe you think that by coming to Christ, by professing your faith in him and him alone, you are entering into a life of peace, a life of ease. But it actually seems to me that as we read the scriptures, the genuine assurance that we are in the Christian faith is actually that we might experience persecution. Jesus said this in this life, you will have what? Trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I think there's another false assurance that uh, if we when we come to the Christian faith that we will have prosperity. A lot of prosperity preachers out there. A lot of people using the gospel message, using the scriptures to simply enrich themselves or to tell people if you do what's in here, everything will work out for you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, in reality, I think what we see is if God does grant us Wealth and life, we're, we're told to part with it. We're told to be generous. True Christian experience isn't prosperity, it's generosity. 
I think information is another false assurance. If, if we're informed, if we have the right doctrine, the right theology, sure, certainly that's how we know we're living out the real genuine Christian experience. Uh, but in fact, what we see in the scripture is that it's not information, but it's transformation that uh, authenticates our faith. James 2.19, we went through this uh, a while back now, this great message where Paul looks at uh, his audience, or not Paul, um, James looks at his audience and essentially tells them, hey, um, you think that by believing in one God, you're, you've got the right doctrine and the right practice here? Guess what? The demons believe that. You have the same theology as the demons. And it's not information that authenticates your faith. It's transformation. The amount of faith is, I think, something that our world really champions, too. If you have enough faith, Right? Or even the sort of the syncretism of our world. You can believe lots of different things all at the same time. Instead, what we find in Scripture is it is the object of our faith. The Thessalonians turned from the worship of other gods to worshiping the true and living God. The inner witness, I think, is another one. You just have this feeling in and of yourself that affirms something to you. That's how you authenticate your faith. It's this inner witness. Uh, it actually seems to me that Jesus taught it was the outer witness. Uh, he actually gave uh, an incredible right to unbelievers to make a judgment on those who were truly in the faith. He said, all men will know you are my disciples if what? If you love one another. Who gets to make that judgment? The world. And so it's not just this inner security, but it's those who observe us. And finally, I think some people say it's, it's by what I've done for God. That's how I know that I'm genuinely in the faith. Romans 5, 8 assures us it's what God has done for us. Those are the authenticating marks. As you guys can see, everything in this letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians is encouragement. He knows them. He knows they're the genuine article. He knows it because he's seen the fruit in their lives and because he saw the external evidence. And he bragged about the influence that came out for them to really the whole world around them. I think that's an enviable reputation. I hope it's something you desire uh, in your own life as well. Let's pray and then we're going to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, there's lots of things that could cause us to question the genuineness of our own faith. Or the goodness of it. Or your goodness. As we go through difficulties in life. Father we're encouraged as we think about the Thessalonians. And the ways that Paul authenticated their faith. To point out what was genuine in them. Lord may we truly be transformed from the inside out by this gospel message. Bearing the fruit in our lives of of the cardinal virtues of the Christian life. May we not fall into the trap of false assurances. But may we always be informed by the word of God as to the the genuine assurances of genuine faith. We want to be the real deal and we want to persevere to the end. So thank you for this word that encourages us to do just that. In your name we pray. Amen.